Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by Paul Breitbarth, Data Protection Lead at Catawiki and host of the Serious Privacy Podcast. We'll be talking about GDPR, what to know as a business operator, how to balance business and privacy interests, and how to navigate it all. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. Nice to be on the other side for a change. Yes, thanks so much for being here. Why don't we have you expand a little bit on your background? Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? Sure, happy to. So my name is Paul Breitbart. As you mentioned, I live in The Hague in the Netherlands, and I've been in data protection since 2009. Um, Before that, actually, I worked on some data protection files as a committee clerk in the Dutch Senate. Um, And that is actually how I ended up in data protection. I had a lot of senators who were very keen on data protection topics. Um, There was quite a bit of European legislation uh, debated at the time uh, in terms of counterterrorism measures, and they were concerned about the impact that that would have on on privacy and data protection of the Dutch citizens. So they asked me to dive deeper into that. Um, I reached out to the Dutch Data Protection Authority to understand what this whole issue was all about, because in my time, it was not taught in law school yet. And um, a relationship grew, and when it was time for my second job, I applied at the Dutch DPA to work there for a few years, really with the idea that it would be for maybe two or three years, and then I would be going back to something more general. Um, But here I am, uh, (laughs) 14 years later, still doing data protection, um, because I really liked it. Uh, So I spent seven years with the Data Protection Authority, then five years for Nimity and Trustark to uh, privacy software vendors, and the past year and a half I've been with uh, with Katawiki um, as their uh, in-house data protection council. It's also my first in-house data protection role after spend, uh, having spent quite a few years on the outside telling others what to do. Now I need to uh, drink my own champagne or eat my own dog food, as some would say, um, and actually work on all these topics. Um, and apart from my main role, I have a, a lot of side activities uh, privacy related. You mentioned the podcast. I teach privacy law at Maastricht University, um, and I'm a member of the Jersey Data Protection Authority as well. And how long has your podcast been going? So we've been going, we're in season four. Uh, so it's three and a half years. We started right at the uh, start of the integration of Nimity and Trustark uh, back in 2020, um, and also right at the start of the pandemic. Um, my co-host Kay Royal and I had the idea that we would record a series of ep- episodes together every time we would meet face-to-face. Um, but in the end, we only met 45 minutes face-to-face when we created the idea for the podcast. And the first time ever since uh, was during this year's IAPP in Washington. Um, so we've built our whole relationship and, and, and podcast ideas. Everything was done online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I imagine uh, the situation in the world when you started that podcast uh, helped, uh, I, I guess, create a situation where you had to do that online rather than relying on doing that in person. Absolutely. And I think at the same time, it also helped us to grow our audience quite quickly because people were stuck at home and only doing their neighborhood walks uh, as their only time that was allowed outside. So a lot of people turned to listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been in the privacy space now for, I think, 14 years, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. starting in 2009. How has the privacy landscape kind of changed throughout that time? What are some of the big changes from where you started to where it is today? I think there is uh, lots more attention for privacy and data protection issues than there there was when I started. Um, I recall when I 
first joined the Dutch Data Protection Authority. Of course, I had to learn uh, a lot about the, the legislation. This was still the old Data Protection Directive and all the national implementations in the European Union. So it was much more difficult to understand what was going on in other EU countries, let alone in the rest of the world. Um, there was much less alignment than there is today. Um, of course, we, we all see the headlines about another dispute resolution from the European Data Protection Board and another disagreement on what the Irish are doing. Um, back in the day, those discussions also took place, um, but there was no dispute resolution mechanism because even though we work, were working on the same basics of the legislation, it wasn't one single law. Um, so I think that is a major change. Um, also, the number of countries that have data protection legislation has exploded over the past couple of years. Um, certainly in Asia, in Africa, in, in Latin America, we've seen dozens and dozens of new laws or updated uh, data protection laws. And of course, in the US, the, the attention for privacy legislation has uh, significantly grown with 12, 13 states now having their own data protection laws in place. Um, serious discussion about what may happen at the federal level. Um, so also there, there is a there is a big change. On the business side, I also think awareness has grown. Uh, and there are GDPR and also all the news reports about potential fines and sanctions, um, uh, stopping of processing operations um, have really helped to, uh, to alert companies that they should start taking privacy and data protection seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned the sort of, you know, growing landscape of different privacy regulations and how different countries and um, as well as governments and, and people, you know, citizens are essentially taking these things more seriously. I feel like, you know, GDPR was a big catalyst for a lot of that movement um, mm -hmm. and has made you know, privacy the at, at the forefront of you know various business concerns so gdpr started to apply to businesses in 2018 can you give a little bit of background on like what's the history of gdpr and why did europe at that time feel that a privacy regulation was needed so europe has had privacy legislation in place uh, at least the european union since 1995 and the first proposal even dates back to 1991 um, and that was all caused by the idea also laid down in the Council of Europe Convention 108 on automated data processing, that there is such a thing as a right to data protection and that that needs to be regulated in more detail um, than just saying that the right exists. Um, since 1995, we've had the directive um, that was implemented in all of the member states, but in all of the member states slightly differently. Um, so in 2009 already, the discussion started on what at the time was called the future of privacy. Um, how are we going to modernize the data protection legal framework in the European Union in a way that um, we get better harmonization so that it is for the European citizen, uh, wherever they are in the Union, uh, clear what their rights are? Uh, but also for companies doing cross-border business in the European Union, that it is also more clear what rules that they have to conform to. Um, we have the single market already for uh, a couple of decades, um, but with the digital economy growing, uh, the European Commission, European Parliament, the member states started to realize that also the digital single market was something that they should pay attention to um, for companies doing all that online business. And I think that was the main catalyst for the discussion on the future of privacy. 
um, from there, it took another three years of debates and, and preparatory drafts and, and non-papers and papers uh, to get to the legislative proposal that we got early 2012. And then it was another four years of negotiations with almost 4,000 amendments um, to what we now know as the GDPR uh, to be adopted. Um, so it was a very lengthy process um, from, from 2009 to 2016, then the two years where everybody should have been getting ready, uh, but basically everybody thought, oh, that's May 2018, that's, that's very far away. Uh, and then suddenly it was April 2018 and everybody had to rush towards compliance. Mm-hmm. And what was the sort of immediate impact on businesses when that date did uh, you know, come into effect essentially? And, and what was, you know, how did the world sort of respond? You know, you mentioned this idea that people were kind of like, I guess, procrastinating for a couple of years. And mm-hmm. then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, well, it's May 2018 and we need to, we need to do something. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing that the world did to respond is send out all these notices. We've updated our privacy policy. Please accept them here. Um that had nothing to do with GDPR compliance, um, updating the notice uh, for sure. But um, as you may be aware, there is no consent for a privacy notice because it's a, a one-way notification. Um, but that was certainly a thing that, that the world did. Um, more in general, I think there was a lot of fear-mongering um, in, in uh, the first half year of, of 2018. Um, GDPR is coming on the 25th of May, and on the 26th of May, which was a Sunday, um, we will see the first massive fines being handed out to Facebook and to Google for non-compliance. Um, and of course, that did not happen also because data protection authorities have to follow due process. So they first need to investigate and give the companies a chance to respond and and so on and so on. Um, But for companies, I think, well, the notice is one of their most most visual parts on on their privacy policy. So I think that is one of the things that they did. Um, Surprisingly, lots of companies started looking at their cookie banners, um, even though they are not regulated uh, by GDPR. And I think quite a few companies also started working on their register of processing activities, mainly as a project, um, to do it as a as a one-off to make sure that at least they had some documentation um, of what they were doing. Um, and that is certainly uh, certainly something that I also saw on the on the tech vendor side in in from the start of 2018 until the mid of 2019. There was a massive interest for companies to to acquire software uh, and to make sure that uh, they could document something, that they could automate something. Um, and many of them hoping that there would be a single magic button that they could push that everything automatically um, would be would be filled out. That's that doesn't exist. Um, so it is a lot of manual work. And that also led to, I think, a professionalization of the privacy profession. There were a lot of vacancies. Lots of people were hired. Also, there are some very funny examples where companies in in May 2018 were looking for somebody with 10 years of GDPR experience. Um, but uh, all in all, I think many companies started to pay much more attention to to privacy and data protection, also for their internal compliance. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a couple things around. Uh, you know, the reaction of people, you know, uh, essentially letting people know that their privacy policies have been updated or their cookie consent banners and not all those things are necessarily regulated under GDPR. And I feel like there's a lot of confusion about what GDPR actually entails. You know, people mm-hmm. seem to know now that it's, you know, it's a thing, 
But there's a lot of, uh, I think, misleading information about what the requirements for a business really are. So how would you summarize the requirements of a business when it comes to GDPR? Like, what are the main things that I would need to know and understand as an operator of a business trying to do business in Europe? Um, well, the best thing to do, of course, is is to make sure that your legal team reads the GDPR and, and start making a list of the things that apply to you as an organization. Um, but more in general, I think key requirements are, first of all, what data do I have and why and how do I use it? Um, where is it coming from? Who is the data about? Um, why do I have it in the first place? Um, do I need this data? Um, and where is it going to? And, and that all comes down to your uh, register of processing activities. And you can do that in multiple ways. You can start with uh, the why, so with the purpose of processing, but you can also start with the how. So just start making a list of all your software and what data it entails and uh, how it is being used and by which teams and who should have access and all of that. Um, I think that is that is one of the key requirements because that also helps you to understand um, what data you have and, and, and also what your risks are. Um, Second point is doing your risk assessments. If I process personal data, um, what risks does that bring to me as an organization? Um, and also what risks does that bring for my customers and my employees and all the others whose data I have? Third, what is my role? Um, am I responsible? Am I the decision maker for all of this data processing? In that case, you're the data controller. Or am I doing this on behalf of somebody else? And then you are the data processor. Um, and that has an impact on all your contracts, um, which is point four, making sure that you have um, good contracts in place that also discuss when personal data is processed, how that is uh, supposed to be done, also there, who has access to it. Um, and the final big point, I think, is data flows. Um, uh, and especially if you are a non-European company processing personal data of people who are physically in the European Union, or if you are targeting uh, the European market, um, then you also need to make sure that the data can leave the European Union. Um, aside from that, what I think is already standard practice for most organizations is data security, um, making sure that no third parties that should not have access to the data um, can get access to your data. Um, and if that does happen, that you report it uh, both to the appropriate authorities, but also to the individuals when needed. And then you, the fourth point that you mentioned there around data flows and knowing whether the data is allowed to leave the EU. How do I know that, whether the data I'm collecting is allowed to leave the EU or not? So the basic rule is that the data is not supposed to leave the European Union. So that's that's easy to remember. Um, then there is a list of the so-called adequate countries um, and those have been uh, designated by the European Commission um, as having a level of data protection that is similar to that of the GDPR. Um, that's uh, a list that's publicly available on the website of the Commission, also on the website of the European Data Protection Board. Uh, and that includes countries like the United Kingdom and Switzerland, Japan and South Korea, um, uh, but also some some older decisions that are still in place from pre-GDPR that are currently being reviewed, um, which includes, for example, Jersey, Guernsey and the Isle of Man, um, Israel, New Zealand, uh, Uruguay, 
um, those kind of countries. It's not all of the biggest countries in the world. Um, Canada uh, is there as long as you stay within the federal uh, legislation, PIPEDA. Um, also then, if that applies, uh, data can flow from the European Union to, to Canada. Um, and since a couple of weeks, the United States again, as long as a company is self-certified under the new EU-US data privacy framework. Um, and um, in all of those situations, data can flow freely. So you do not need to jump through additional hoops. No additional documentation is required. Uh, data can just flow. If you want to transfer personal data to countries that are not listed uh, with an adequacy decision, then you need um, uh, additional rules and regulations in place in your contracts. Um, you can use model clauses for that. Those are the so-called SCCs or standard contractual clauses that you need to fill out. There are quite a few annexes to, to fill out as well on what kind of data and for which purpose and, and, and all of that. Um, and you need to sign and execute them. Um, I see a lot that companies just refer to those in their uh, in their data processing agreement, in their contract, saying, oh yeah, uh, by signing this document, we also immediately have executed the SCCs. That doesn't make them valid. They actually need to be executed themselves uh, and, and completely filled out. Um, that is the, the best alternative if there is no, um, uh, no adequacy decision. In all of the other situations, if, if SECs for one reason or another do not work, um, you can make a, a tailor-made contract and send that for review to your supervisory authority, but that can take a long time for it to get reviewed. Um, you can rely upon binding corporate rules um, or certifications or codes of conduct um, in theory, but that's still fairly difficult to, to achieve. Also very uh, time-consuming, and also there you need the involvement of the Data Protection Authority. And then in, in some very uh, one-off cases, um, there are other grounds where you can rely upon for, for data transfer. So uh, for a one-off, um, for example, if a European wants to uh, book, uh, book a hotel in China, uh, then you can give consent and say, no, for this specific trip, um, I'm okay with sending my personal data to the hotel in China um, so that they can confirm the reservation. But that cannot be done for anything that is um, on a continuous or large-scale basis. Um, so it's it's fairly complex to get data out of the European Union. That is also why those adequacy decisions um, are so important. Yeah, it seems like it, it, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly just hearing you kind of walk through uh, the different scenarios there. So I imagine any business that's trying to, you know, essentially, um, you know, operate somewhere in Europe, whether they're European-based business or otherwise, needs someone like yourself or someone uh, essentially either on staff or um, on a contract basis to help them sort of navigate all of this. Yeah, and not just not just companies in Europe, to be honest, because um, given that the GDPR has been an inspiration for for many jurisdictions. There are currently 100 countries around the world that have some form of restriction on international data transfers. So all in all, there are like 10,000 different uh, combinations um, of data flows that, that require some form of regulation, um, some easier than others. In some cases, indeed, adequacy um, is, uh, is a possibility. But for many, um, many transfers, you may need to fall back on those uh, on those data transfer contracts, standard contractual clauses uh, exist in the European Union, but also in the UK, uh, in the Middle East, um, uh, in Latin America. Um, so also there, there is a there is a, a 
a lot has been changed uh, in recent years and not everything has made it easier. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the other, you know, common challenges businesses face when trying to be compliant with GDPR? Um, I think the main challenge for a lot of companies is that they have been um, looking at GDPR in 2018 as a project. So a one-off compliance effort and that now five years later, they start to realize that it is actually something that they should have been doing on an ongoing basis. Um, which means that there are gaps, that there are things that are outdated, uh, especially when it comes to uh, to the register of processing activities. Um, and that, that requires another project to get that up to date and then also to keep it up to date. Um, the other thing that takes a lot of organizations a lot of time is uh, contract management. Um, contract management in general is already a headache for, for most organizations. Um, but add to that also all the data processing agreements um, that need to be concluded as soon as you work um, with a service provider um, uh, or with a cloud uh, cloud company uh, as part of your data processing. And that's pretty almost almost every company does that. Um, you also need data processing agreements to, to be in place um, that uh, often require negotiation and renegotiation. Um, and not every service provider is willing to negotiate. Uh, especially big tech companies say, oh no, uh, you can just download the agreement from our website and, and that's it, take it or leave it. Uh, we're not going to negotiate because we cannot negotiate 10,000 contracts. Whereas the GDPR said that if you are the data controller, you are also the party that should be giving instructions to whoever processes personal data on your behalf. Um, and also there, it makes it, it, makes it difficult. Um, for me, it makes it even more difficult if those big tech companies also say, oh, yeah, and we reserve the right to unilaterally change this agreement at our will, because for me, then it is no longer a contract. Uh, I've always learned in at least in European contract law um, that both parties should agree to the final text for it to be valid and that you cannot unilaterally change something. But um, that that seems to be the uh, the approach of many companies nowadays. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just had a few quick reminders. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episode and help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Really helps. Last thing before I get you back to the interview, if you are interested in the topics discussed in this podcast, then you should definitely, definitely join the partially redacted community at skyflow.com community. There you can meet other interesting and like-minded individuals like yourself share your expertise, or just passively engage, totally up to you. All right, now back to the show. So if I'm the data controller, then anyone that I'm essentially passing data to as a, as a third party that's a processor, then I need to do the contract management with yes. it, with them. But if they're big enough, essentially, they're not going to negotiate with me. So how do companies uh, handle that situation? Um, some push back. Uh, and try to negotiate nevertheless. And if you if you are big enough and, and get some uh, volume behind you as well, then that might work. Uh, we've seen that the Dutch government was able to do that when negotiating on behalf of all of the government and all of the education system here in the Netherlands, um, that they were able to negotiate with Google, with Microsoft, with Zoom um, to get improvements to their privacy approach. Um, but that would then mainly apply um, to the Dutch government and not necessarily to all of their customers. 
Um, but you see, size, mat- size matters in these negotiations. So if you can have some purchasing power behind you, uh, maybe by uh, teaming up with similar companies or with with uh, older companies in, in, in one country and negotiate together, that might help. Um, and some will also just accept and, and make a risk assessment and say, well, this is not the biggest risk that we have. Um, this is a vital product for what we want to do. Um, so we do not really have a choice. And then they make a business decision to accept a certain risk. Um, and also that is understandable. I mean, GDPR is just just one of the few, of the many laws that companies need to comply with um, when they want to do business. Um, and compliance is important. I'm, I can be a data protection fundamentalist, um, but I also understand that um, business needs to do business. Um, and that at some point, um, you cannot stop a company from doing business only because GDPR says that you need a better contract. Then that is a business risk that you uh, might be willing to accept. Um, but it is always looking for the right balance um, while also bearing in mind the interest of the individual. Um, and uh, that is, of course, where it also becomes becomes complex. Um, I'm lucky that in the end, most of those decisions are not my decisions, uh, but that of the company, uh, because most data protection lawyers are only advisors, um, and it is senior management that would take decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned this idea that uh, you know there's a lot of stakeholders involved with a, a company that's trying to adhere to you know GDPR. There's you know the internal teams, there's maybe internal experts, external experts, regulatory bodies. So how does you know the businesses that you work with, or based on your experience, how do you balance essentially the you know the business needs with the needs to be compliant? Uh, by continuously doing risk assessments. Um, and that all starts um, for me with looking at the risk appetite of an organization. Is the organization um, by its very nature an organization that wants to strive towards 100% compliance or are they willing to take more risk? Um, and if so, um, in uh, what areas do they want to take on risk? Are they um, willing to be more lenient on security requirements? Are they more lenient uh, uh, to work on, on the transparency side? Um, or are they or do they want to be really transparent also on the things that they may not be doing uh, perfectly? Um, so I think that is the first discussion that you that you need to have um, with the senior leadership in in your organization wherever you are. What is their risk appetite. Um, When you understand that, then you can start uh, looking at examples um, of processing operations in your organization. Um, Let's take cookies as an example. Many organizations, uh, many companies um, want to continue doing um, online advertising because it's just it's good for generating leads, for getting com- getting people to come back to to your website, for to your product, your service. Um, even though I think all privacy professionals by now know and, and realize that digital advertising, the way we've been doing it for the past decade, um, is a model that will not be sustainable for a lot longer because it is not really compliant. We've had court case about court case. Um, court case upon court case to to actually uh, show that 
Um, but still, companies want to do online advertising. So some say, well, we move towards more contextual advertising and that way ensure that we are compliant. Others say, no, as long as this system has not been shut down, we'll continue to use it. Um, and we'll continue with contextual with the, the personalized advertising um, and uh, letting Meta and Google and Microsoft and, and all the others um, use as much of the data um, as they can to make sure that we continue to have that ad revenue. Um, and those are the two extremes and many companies will be somewhere in the middle. Um, but that is a discussion that you then really need, really specifically also need to have. Um, bearing in mind the risk appetite, but also just taking those examples and say, okay, so if we take this, um, uh, these two extremes, where do you see yourself as as CEO of this company or chief marketing officer of this company? Um, what is your vision on, on where we should go? Uh, and what are you comfortable with? Because in the end, the C-suite is the one assuming uh, the actual risk, uh, also in case something goes wrong. Uh, and you can show them, these are the consequences. This is the likelihood that we will get an, an a complaint from a user. This is the likelihood that um, the data protection authority uh, will come and ask questions. This is the likelihood that the court will say something, um, and this is the likelihood that the model will change. Um, all different sides to to look at a, a specific uh, discussion, and then um, it's up to them to decide. Uh, so there is no no easy approach to say okay this is how you should do it it's it's a longer conversation to have internally yeah it's not uh necessarily like uh any of these things are not black and white it's a a sliding mm -hmm. scale or a gradient essentially and and based on their their potential risk tolerance and the likelihood of of an action it is and there's also not a a, a predefined checklist that you can take uh to to assess this kind of risk um it it is very much dependent on the context also of your organization um, to, uh, to to ask the right questions. In the context of GDPR, you know, what does it really mean to be compliant? Is it is it even possible to really realistically be 100% compliant? I've never believed in 100% in compliance, no. Um, I think you can strive towards 100% compliance uh, and, and do everything uh, in your power to to try and do it right, um, but it's almost impossible because somewhere down the line, somewhere down your supply chain, um, there will be a company um, using a, a certain service provider that they have not vetted, uh, that will have access to your personal data. Um, the only way to be fully compliant uh, probably is to have all your data processing offline in an unstructured form, uh, but that also means that you would not be able to scale and that you would not be able to find anything because there is no structure to your data. Um, and it's all paper-based. Um, in those situations, you might be able to be compliant, but in today's day and age, that's not realistic. Um, so what it means to be compliant um, under the GDPR is that you have your foundations in order, um, that you understand your data, that you have internal policies and procedures on how to work with the data um, and what your employees should and should not do with the data, that you are transparent towards your um, uh, towards your individuals, whether those are employees or users or customers or um, whosoever data you are processing on what is happening with their data. Um, those kind of steps are important, that you know what to do if something goes wrong, 
um, that you uh, indeed have those contracts uh, properly documented. Um, and that is um, what I've been referring to for the past decade as having that capacity to comply. Um, the foundational model of your privacy program in place that you're also able to demonstrate compliance um, by showing all those policies and procedures and guidelines um, should questions be asked. That also means that something can still go wrong. Uh, it can still be that an individual makes a mistake um, because that is also how most data breaches um, are created. It's just human error. Um, but at least if the foundation is good, then you also know what to do next. Um, and you can also uh, limit the impact that a breach might have uh, because you can respond quickly. <laughs> How has GDPR influenced the way that businesses uh, have to or essentially handle breaches and have to respond to breaches? Um, GDPR was not the, the first big lull with data breach notifications. Um, I think it has raised further awareness, especially here in, in, in the European Union. Um, but we've seen data breach notifications before, uh, especially in the United States, um, uh, at a very large scale, mainly at state level and then all the different state levels, some national breach notification requirements as well. Um, so I think most international companies were already familiar with what it means to report a data breach. In the EU, it was still fairly new. Some countries had some form of uh, breach notification for a few years already, also under telecoms laws. Um, but GDPR made it uh, a mandatory notification across the board for everything that would go wrong uh, with personal data, as long as there would be a risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals. Um, then you need to report to the supervisory authority, um, and in case of a high risk, also to the individual. Um, what that high risk specifically entails um, is described in, in some guidelines um, from uh, the European Data Protection Board, but was not explicitly included um, uh, very clearly in, in the legislation. So that's also for companies still, um, still after these five years, uh, um, a bit of an assessment every time. Do we think that this may have a high risk for the individual, yes or no? Or uh, what many companies also do, do we think this is a reputational risk for us if we do not tell the individual? Um, that's what I see much more frequently, to be honest. And that out of an abundance of caution, um, companies will uh, will um, inform the individual even though it might not be legally uh, required. Um we see that the number of data breach reports is high um, across the European Union, but still there is the suspicion that only about a quarter to a third um, of data breaches are actually reported. Uh, and that is also because a lot of um, supervisory authorities just do not have the resources to follow up on each and every data breach, uh, let alone in following up on the non-reported data breaches. Um, and that also makes it easier for companies, I guess, to, to get away with non-reporting um, if they don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the, what are the fines for non-compliance? How does, how does that work and how are they enforced? Um, so fines are just one of the sanctions under the GDPR. Um, I think most listeners will know that they can go up to 20 million euros or 4% 
of global turnover. Um, we are currently at well over three and a half billion euros in fines um, that have been imposed since the GDPR went into effect in 2018, um, which for some will be a lot of money. I don't think it's it's all that much looking at um, how many investigations are also still ongoing. Um, but to be honest, the fines are not the most important sanction that is available in the GDPR. Um, fines are nice because they make good headlines um, and they give some feeling of satisfaction because the company made a lot of money um, on our personal data, so now they have to pay some of that back. Um, but if you look, for example, at the, the fine that the Luxembourg Data Protection Authority imposed on Amazon, which was, I believe, 820 million euros, that's a lot of money. Uh, for Amazon, it was a couple of hours of work um, uh, in terms of turnover. Um, so that puts it all in perspective. Okay, yes, it's a lot of money, but for Amazon, actually, it wasn't all that much. Um, same for the fines that have been imposed on Meta uh, by the Irish Supervisory Authority. Um, so fines are there. They are good to raise awareness. But for me, the compliance orders and certainly um, the processing bans um, are much more important. Um, not sure if you remember, but earlier this year, the Italian supervisory authority imposed a processing ban, a temporary processing ban um, on OpenAI for their ChatGPT uh, software uh, because it wasn't compliant with GDPR. Um, and that means that the product immediately was no longer available in Italy. Um, the Norwegian DPA now has imposed a processing ban on Meta for targeted advertising uh, for individuals um, in Norway uh, by Meta uh, on Facebook and on Instagram, um, which also makes sure that as of this week, actually, um, no targeted advertising um, based on your likes and your preferences and uh, Meta following you around the web with, with trackers and cookies um, that can no longer be done in Norway until um, the European Data Protection Board has convened in September uh, and taken a decision on, on how to uh, apply this case um, all across Europe. You could say, well, but Norway should not, be, uh, should not be competent in doing this because Ireland is the main supervisory authority for Facebook and Instagram. That's true. However, in this case, uh, the Norwegians had asked already before to the Irish, uh, please enforce this. Uh, the Irish had refused. They say, no, we are still working on this. It will take a bit more time. Um, and then a new court case came out, Meta versus the uh, German Competition Authority. And then the Norwegians said, we don't want to wait any longer. We feel there is an urgent need to protect Norwegians um, uh, and, and the data processing here in Norway. Uh, so we impose the temporary ban. Um that immediately has a very big effect. Um, and um, I think those kind of sanctions um, should be used more, um, also because they are much more powerful into pushing companies towards compliance. Yeah, I mean, something like a fine, especially if you're talking about a company that's worth you know, trillions of dollars and you're finding them you know, millions or, or you know, bill, even billions of euros, it doesn't really have the impact that, that it uh, essentially stopping business mm -hmm. in certain countries or certain regions of the world will have on a business. Uh, you know, nothing creates a certain sense of urgency, I imagine, for a company like not being able to essentially operate any longer in certain places. And we saw that with, uh, you know, uh, the Italy ban of ChatGPT, which you mentioned. You know, looking towards sort of the future, 
what do you see as the the future of GDPR? Are there um, you know amendments or updates that that people should be aware about? Uh, no amendments have been uh, have been announced. I think that the in any case that the next year or two. Um, GDPR is unlikely to change because we're going into election season uh, in the European Union next year, June of 2024. Um, there will be a new European Parliament elected. And then uh, as of the 1st of December 2024, we'll see a new European Commission. Um, so I think all the legislative proposals of this commission are more or less on the table by now. Um, and it will take a couple of months until 2025 for the new commission to, to draft their work program. Um, it's not unlikely that in the five years that follow, so between here and the end of the decade, um, we will see a revision of the GDPR. Um, that will not be a major overhaul like we saw with the introduction uh, of the GDPR, but there are some smaller things that um, I think many of us um, would like to see changed. Um, one of them is how we deal with children's data. Um, there is an age of consent included um, in the GDPR that can range anywhere between 13 and 16 years of age, depending on the, the EU member states' preferences. That is something where we've uh, seen a wish to harmonize um, the legal basis. There has been a call to add some legal basis, especially when it comes to processing personal data uh, for scientific research. Um, so that is something that could be discussed. Maybe uh, we see some changes uh, related to international transfers, um, although I think it's it's hard to envision what those could be. Um, but that could also be be part of it. But I don't expect a, a major overhaul of the, of the GDPR. Um, it will mainly be smaller things. The one thing that we still do need, and also there I do expect by now, uh, that will likely see a new proposal under the new European Commission is e-privacy. So the online processing of personal data, then when you come to, to the cookies and, and cookie banners and all of that, um, that has always been regulated in a separate legal instrument. Um, and uh, that was also due to be replaced. Uh, we still have the e-privacy directive in place, which with all the, the national implementations in the EU member states, and also there we had expected an, a regulation, so one common law for all of the European Union. Um, but the EU member states and the European Parliament and the European Commission still have not been able to agree on what that text should look like. Um, the positions have been so firmly adopted by now and everybody is so dug into their own uh, uh, their own preferences that it's unlikely that they'll ever be able to, to reach an agreement on the text that's on the table right now. Um, so also there we might see a new a new proposal um, somewhere from 2025 onwards. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, great. As we start to, to wrap up here, uh, Paul, do you have anything else that you wanted to share or anything else that you think is worth uh, you know letting the audience know about? Um. Well, keep monitoring um, the European Data Protection Board, I would say, um, because also there we we may expect some changes um, as to their approach. Um, the first five years, we had uh, the Austrian Data Protection Authority uh, chairing the European Data Protection Board, Andrea Jelinek, and earlier this year, she was succeeded by Anu Talis, the Finnish uh, Data Protection Commissioner. 
um, uh, for the next five years. Um, and a change in leadership um, might actually change uh, also the way that the board does certain things, that the board looks at certain uh, certain topics. Um, so that is uh, that is a big one. And it is the expectation that we also see a few key players change in the next couple of years. Uh, the mandate of the European Data Protection Supervisor uh, is coming to an end, uh, I believe, next year. Um, the same for the commissioner at the Irish Data Protection Commission um, and maybe some of the others as well. And also those kind of changes will have an impact on, on how the board functions and where the priorities are. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, thanks so much for being here. This was uh, really, really interesting, really fascinating. There's a lot to unpack, you know, ton to navigate, I think, for any business. But I think you did a really good job of, uh, you know, summarizing the key points. And also, I think, uh, you know, having uh, empathy for the practicalities of doing business, I guess, and, and, and sort of understanding the balance between compliance while still being able to, you know, essentially operate a business. And how do you figure out this sort of sliding scale of um, what, what makes sense for, for the business from a risk assessment standpoint. My pleasure. Cheers.